You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. Welcome to the Harris Beach Podcast. My name is Melissa Peterson. Today, Jeffrey Kuhn joins me from our Albany office to take a deep dive into his professional career along with some personal milestones. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you very, um, thanks very much, Melissa. It's great to be here. So you started your career at Harris Beach and now you've returned as a partner focused on energy and environmental matters, project development and complex commercial litigation. What drew you back to the firm? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting question, um, Melissa. Uh, I moved back to the Capital District in, or I moved to the Capital District in 2006. And when I did so, you know, Harris Beach's Albany office was, was relatively small. But, you know, as I've practiced in Albany for the, for the past 16 years um, in the energy and the environmental sector, you know, I, I saw Harris Beach's presence in Albany steadily grow over that time to the point where now Harris Beach is is the third largest firm in the Capital District. So, you know, if I take a if I take sort of take a step back, being an environmental and energy attorney in New York State over the past several years, sort of the major overarching policy issue that we've been dealing with uh, to really to no surprise has been climate change. And, and how New York State in particular is dealing with climate change is, is a really fascinating subject from a, from a policy and a legal perspective. Uh, you know, to just to go back a little ways in 2005, New York State was one of the original members of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, uh, REGI, which is a, a, an interstate effort by, by several Northeast states to reduce carbon emissions from electric generating facilities through a regional cap and trade program. Uh, but then more recently, probably the, the broadest and most important legislative driver of, of energy policy and practice in New York State right now is, is the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, the CLCPA, which was signed into law in 2019. Now, the CLCPA establishes some extremely ambitious uh, carbon reduction goals. At the broadest level, it requires New York to have a 85% reduction in carbon emissions below 1990 levels and includes a 40% reduction by 2030. So that's in just eight years. And so, you know, and I will get this all back to Tara's speech in a minute. It It all comes full circle. But so in terms of the CLCPA and New York State's policy, uh, climate change objectives, you know, how are you going to do that? Well, New York needs to obtain 70% of its electricity from renewable sources by 2030. The CLCPA mandates 100% emissions-free electricity by 2040. The CLCPA also mandates 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind capacity by 2035. 6,000 megawatts of solar energy by 2025. And because solar and energy are, are intermittent, uh, because of their intermittent nature, uh, the CLCPA also mandates 3,000 megawatts of energy storage capacity by 2030. So New York State, you know, in, in, with its policymaking center in Albany, is really attempting to be a leader on climate change. Trying to, it, you know, we're really we're one state, but I think New York is trying to demonstrate to the rest of the country and, frankly, to the rest of the world 
what is in the realm of the possible for a large state with 20 million people and, and obviously being a leader of the nation's economy, what, what New York State can do what, in terms of electrification and, and decarbonization. Uh, it's really, in some ways, you can regard it as kind of a climate change um, moonshot. So, you know, it's not going to be easy. Among other things, those policy objectives require the New York State's CLCPA carbon change policy objectives require really an unprecedented rapid build out of wind and solar uh, electric generating facilities and battery storage in this state. And also uh, there's a critical need to develop new transmission projects to transport all of those new renewable electrons that are primarily generated in upstate New York to the overwhelming centers of energy demand in New York City and other downstate areas. The New York State Independent System Operator, which is the independent non-governmental entity that operates the, the state's grid and administers the wholesale electricity markets and provides you know, reliability planning for the state's uh, bulk electricity system. So they've recently predicted that to achieve the objective of 100% emissions-free energy generation by, by 2040, um, that's going to require over 95 gigawatts of new renewable energy production resources will have to be built in this state in the next 18 years, and 20 gigawatts are going to need to be built in the next seven years. And that's just, that's really an enormous amount of, uh, of electricity uh, that requires huge amounts of solar and wind and, and energy storage project development and associated transmission projects in the state. So... How does this get back to, this is kind of a long answer to your question, but how does this all get back to sort of Harris Beach? All of those projects, all of that, all of that uh, renewable energy generation and transmission projects, all of that requires siting and permitting and construction and interconnection. And any business attempting to develop those kind of critical generation and transmission resources needs attorneys with sort of deep deep insight into the into the key regulatory and energy and environmental issues related to taking advantage of New York State's commitment to encouraging renewable generation and transmission. You know, I've spent my career practicing in, in the energy and the environmental sector. And in particular, over the past decade, I've, uh, to get back to your question, I've watched as Harris Beach and in particularly the the Albany office has become one of sort of the major legal players in the energy industry in New York State. From a bit of a distance, I saw Harris Beach assemble uh, an extremely formidable energy industry team, a team with real deep experience and expertise in helping major clients not just navigate, but really thrive in, in New York State's unique energy regulatory and policy environment that, that, I, that I just spent a couple minutes describing. So I saw really over and over again that uh, Harris Beach was advising clients at all levels of, of the New York State and regional energy world, the generation, you know, utility scale, renewable generation projects, but also you know, really on some of the major transmission projects. So I sort of observed, you know, the, the team, you know, at the top of the energy team, you have Bill Flynn, who's a former chair of the Public Service Commission, and someone that I had I had had the opportunity to work with professionally on some for some cl common clients. Um, you know, he obviously has deep experience and knowledge in the sector. And then, you know, John McManus, who's who's the head of the Albany office and also a key member of the energy team, 
uh, someone who also has a really deep knowledge of energy regulatory law and policy or, and a real expert at practicing before the New York State Public Service Commission. And then people like Aubrey Ohanian and Michelle Piasecki and Javed Avzali. These are all names that as a practitioner, I would see come up over and over again, working um, in very significant roles in, in really major energy generation and transmission projects. And as a group, I mean, that, that's a team, this is a team with a really deep understanding of New York State's, you know, the, the changing renewable policies and programs that I, that I was describing, including public service commission orders on things like net energy metering and, and, and the role of renewable energy in, in the policy initiatives that I was describing. So when the opportunity arose to, to sort of become a part of that team, sort of to bring my experience and to and, and to be able to contribute and become part of, of building a, a sort of a very vibrant and growing office. Um, it was a great opportunity and it was kind of a no, it was no brainer. It's, it's, it's very exciting to be able to, to join the Albany office and in particular the energy team. Um, and honestly, as I, you know, when I explained uh, all of this to some of my existing clients in the energy and the environmental sectors, you know, they were really happy to, to transition over with me because they also see everything else that's been going on that everything that Harris Beach has to offer and the energy team to, to them and their businesses. You know, this is a group that really does add value and becomes a critical member, at least that I've seen now being on the inside for, for the last six months, a critical member of the of their of the clients teams in, in terms of achieving their objectives. So there's a really long answer to your question about um, you know what it was that sort of attracted me to you know to kind of come back because you know I did start my career at Harris Beach a, a long time ago but but I'll, I'll kind of stop there and uh, you know but that's that's the long answer to your question about how, you know what it was that attracted me to come come back to the Albany office and to the, the energy team in particular. Perfect. Harris Beach has recently launched a practice focused on environmental, social, and governance service, commonly abbreviated ESG. Could you share your take on ESG, why it's emerging, and what clients should keep in mind? Sure. Uh, well, I mean, why it's emerging is, I think, over, you know, up until relatively recently, there was a school of thought that basically said that, um, Really, the, just the only social responsibility of of business was to maximize profits for shareholders, and that was the only sort of the the primary and overriding objective. And I think that over the last um, several years, you've seen sort of a modification of that, that. That there's a new model, you know, which you know ESG, which stands for you know environmental social governance, which is a a methodology for sort of assessing the impact um, that a that a business has on social and environmental issues and and how the how a business's um, incorporation of that into its decision making impacts its financial performance and its operations the there's a lot of uh, you know in the energy sector in particular there are a lot of environmental issues that arise um, in terms of you know what we've been talking about a lot of climate change and uh, a lot of entities that are going to do business in the energy sector or are going to have sort of working relationships with with energy companies want to know uh, sort of what those companies are doing with respect to um, you know their ESG practices uh, and how they can enhance the company's ability to make long-term uh, sustainable value to to shareholders so for companies that are in the renewable energy sector um, you know that are 
that are either solar or wind or battery storage um, developers or, or companies that are, are working to uh, improve the transmission capacity to allow those, uh, you know, the renewable energy to flow to load. Um, I think from an ESG perspective, one of the important things is sort of trumpeting all the all, all the positive environmental and social impacts of, of doing that kind of business of advancing that kind of uh, that increase um, in renewable energy. And that, you know, if, if you're able to do that effectively to demonstrate to, you know, potential investors or, or, or other uh, stakeholders, the the positive impact that you're having from an ESG perspective, um, it really can uh, it, it can have a, a really beneficial effect on on your financial performance and your ability to attract investors. So, uh, part of being an effective attorney, uh, advising clients in the ESG space is really just helping them demonstrate that, demonstrate their uh, how much you know what their their ESG bona fides uh, to to the market, and uh, and and as attorneys, we can we can help with that process. Right. So everyone wins. Everyone's Indeed. happy. Right. So you've helped multinational and international companies navigate challenges on a global scale, uh, as well as, you know, a, a more regional or statewide uh, focus. So what kind of perspective does that give you about regulation, litigation and other matters that companies might face? Well, you know, I think it's interesting to see how when when you operate sort of in New York state and then in other parts of the country and then really in other parts of the world, it does give you a perspective on how different, you know, different regions handle different sorts of problems, especially for, you know, in, in, from my experience in, in the energy and environmental sector, certain parts of the world um, don't have nearly the same sort of environmental disclosure and analysis requirements that go along with uh, with developing certain projects uh, in New York State we have something called the uh, the state environmental quality review act seeker which which really requires that that many um, many types of actions and projects uh, as an initial step before before the development can actually proceed require a really comprehensive analysis of uh, of the potential environmental effects of whatever that whatever that particular action or, or project might be. Um, other states, other parts of the country, don't have those. Uh, always have the same level of environmental disclosure requirements. And so you can you see how does that impact a, a business? How does you know does do, does do those sort of more relaxed requirements elsewhere allow projects to develop more quickly? Do they you know might they have might there be environmental ramifications of particular projects that haven't been vetted as as um, strictly and comprehensively as they are in New York State? And so you see sort of both but you know you, practicing throughout the throughout the country and throughout the world you kind of get a sense of of where the differences are and how those what the impacts are for those on on all different facets and all different dimensions of project development and you, and you do see i mean i've certainly dealt with uh, internationally in particular where at least projects that were developed you know in the it, sort of decades ago where there really weren't any sort of environmental disclosure requirements you, you do see impacts of those uh, adverse environmental impacts because because there wasn't any of the effort to sort of examine the the what the environmental ramifications of a project would be um, in advance and so I think you do see that 
a lot of places in the world are sort of catching up with with our with kind of the way that the United States tends to do things in terms of really taking a, a careful look at how any particular project is going to impact the environment and and people's lives and uh and and catching up with that so I, in some of the things that i've done is sort of um worked in other parts of the world to assist um assist companies and even governments with large-scale projects and how it is that they can sort of effectively evaluate what what the impacts of a particular project might be and, and to try and mitigate those impacts in a way that still accomplishes whatever the objective is of the project but also make sure that uh, it's done in a, in a sustainable way so that's been sort of an interesting um you know sort of comparative uh, uh uh experience i've had and and also seeing how that's evolved even you know in the 20 years or so that i've been practicing right yeah that comparative angle is, is always interesting and um i want to focus now on a more local scene hyper local actually can you talk about your position as an elected official in albany county and how it might have given you a different perspective on practicing law Sure. Yeah. So uh, I was elected to the Albany County Legislature in 2019. So I'm, I'm a current member of the Albany County Legislature, and I, I previously served on the town board in in Bethlehem, which is the town the town where I live. Uh, it does give you a different perspective um, to in a, in a few different ways, right? So as as an attorney practicing in some highly regulated industries where you uh, you do deal with sort of gov governmental officials quite a bit. Being on that other side of the table, being sort of on the governmental side of the table, I think it gives you some perspective on uh, understanding what governmental officials uh, are, are trying to accomplish and sort of what their, who their stakeholders are, who, who they need to answer to, and how it is their thought that their thought processes go on. So I think you know serving in government can kind of give you a little bit of perspective on that. I think also being in sort of on the business side of things and on the project development side of things for, for a big part of my career, I think also informs sort of my, uh, a lot of where I come, you know, the perspective that I bring to acting as a legislator, you know, when, when it comes to assessing laws and their effectiveness and, you know, is is this you know first of all you, the first decision that, that you make as sort of a legislature is okay what is the what's the policy goal that we're trying to to further here right and then but beyond that it's uh, the legislation is taking the, whatever that policy objective is and trying to effectuate it right in a way that um that is going to achieve whatever that objective is, but also in a way that's going that that whoever the regulated, you know, the, the regulated business or, or people are, that are they going to understand? Uh, is the legislation clear? Will it achieve its objective? But will it do so in a way that is very clear to the, to the public and you know whoever that might be, because I think um, from a you know, representing sort of businesses uh, for for a big part of my career, you understand that really what what businesses are looking for in terms of legislation is just sort of uh, kind of predictability, understanding. Okay, you know what it is that's that's required here, uh, and you don't want there to be ambiguity in terms of you know whatever law is in terms of what it is it's requiring of the business community. So. I think bringing that perspective to to the legislative process can be helpful to try and sort of tighten things up and make it, you know, 
if we if we if this is what we're trying to do from a policy perspective, that's fine. But like, what do we need to do to make sure that uh, everyone who is subject to this particular piece of legislation understands precisely what it is that that is required of them? So I think. You know, it, it helps from from both perspectives, both, you know, understanding, representing clients uh, that are that are dealing with governmental entities, understanding sort of what it's like to be on the other side of the table. And also uh, when you want when I am on the other side of the table as, as a legislator, sort of understanding what, um, you know, what we need to do to to make our legislation as effective as possible. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and this last question is my favorite question because we can't forget to mention that you were a three-day champion on Jeopardy. Can you share what that experience was like and did your very diverse background help with any categories by chance? Uh, well, so this was, uh, this was quite a while ago now, that, but I was, I, I was actually young, uh, this, I was at Harris Beach. I was a, a, a young associate working in the, uh, in the Rochester office when, uh, when I was on Jeopardy. And uh, it's funny, I, um, I had tried out for the show and, uh, and I guess I passed the test. And, but before I found out that I was going to be on the show, um, Jeopardy had told the sort of local television station uh, that somebody from Rochester uh, was, was going to be on. I was living and working in Rochester at the time. And so the local television station got in touch with Harris beach and they um, decided that it would be fun to, uh, have to to sort of surprise me with the fact that I was gonna was going to be on the show with at a at a big uh, assembly of everyone the entire firm in in the Rochester office was was brought together for an assembly uh, I didn't know what the assembly was for and uh, and as I, I you know somebody called me back and and asked me to you know, talked to him for a minute before the assembly started. And then we walked in and then all of a sudden the entire firm was there. The Jeopardy music started playing. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was kind of overwhelming, but uh, it, it, it was great. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as I went through that whole experience, you know, it was uh, the, all my friends and colleagues at, at Harris beach were, were, were really supportive and, and, and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. But uh, so in terms of most memorable moment, well, when I was on the show, well, first of all, I was on the season that Ken Jennings was on, and I think I missed Ken Jennings by about three weeks. So it was just lucky timing because if right. I if I had been later, I would have just been uh, one of the you know <laughs> hundreds of people that just lost to Ken Jennings. So I, I was fortunate in terms of the timing. But um, uh, you know, I I used to watch the show all the time uh, with my wife and. Uh, and uh, you, it's, I, I would see somebody who would be down like late in the game and they would get a daily double and they would do some sort of, you know, not very aggressive wager on, on the daily double. And I would always say, what are you doing? You, you know, this is your opportunity to get back in the game. You got, you know, you got to, you got to take advantage of it. So then of course on my, I think it was one of the days I was on, um, I was down sort of late in, in, in double jeopardy. And, uh, and I got that, you know, I, got the daily double. And so I had to do it. I, I, I got the opportunity to say, Alex, Alex, let's make it a true daily double. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I got that one and then that, and then things sort of, the, the, you know, things went, went well for the rest of the day there. And so I ended up winning that day, but that was probably my most memorable moment because I was, I was way down late in double jeopardy and was able to, uh, to, you know, have that, uh, that iconic, you know, daily double moment. So true daily double. So that was probably the most, uh, most memorable thing, but, uh, it was, um, 
you know, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun and, uh, it, it was, uh, Harris beach was really supportive, uh, of, of it when it was going on. So, um, that's, uh, those are my, uh, my strongest memories from, from being on Jeopardy. Yeah. My college roommate was on a couple years ago. I think she got to say that sentence also. Oh, <laughs> well, good for her. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was like a major, major life, uh, highlight and milestone. So. Yeah, no, I understand. Absolutely. All right. Well, Jeff, thank you for joining us today and sharing more about your passions, pursuits, and perspectives. We're glad you have returned to the firm. I wanted to uh, thanks. Thank you, Melissa. It's been, it's been a real pleasure uh, speaking with you. Sure. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. We encourage you to explore more resources and learn more about Jeff at harrisbeach.com. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach Podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.